Welcome to Courage and Spice. This is the podcast for humans with self-doubt. I'll share evidence-based resources and teach you proven coaching tools to help you transcend your self-doubt. I'm Sass Petherick, a master coach and founder of the Self-Belief Coaching Academy. I'm so glad you're here. Let's do this. Well, hello there and welcome to the Courage and Spice podcast. I'm so excited to be in your ears and talking to you today about compassion. If there's one single idea that helps us to navigate the path from self-doubt to self-belief, it's compassion. It's right at the heart of all of my work. (laughs) And I know how much resistance so many of us feel about compassion It can be very, very hard to practice this, but I want to talk to you today about compassion, about why it's so important, and I'm going to share four truths and a myth about compassion. I'm also going to share with you um, some ways that I work with clients around allowing some compassion to just come into the way you talk to yourself. And I really want to give you a super practical, immediately applicable practice that you can experiment with that will just allow you to start seeing compassion in a different way, perhaps. I just want to really touch on any of you who, you may even have skipped past this episode when you saw the title. (laughs) If, If that's you, welcome back. But I want to talk to you about why I think we resist compassion so much. One really core reason is that if we haven't ever been taught to value compassion, it can feel really bloody crunchy. So if you grew up in a home that didn't really see the point in being compassionate to each other, if you've been part of a state school system (laughs) or you have been employed Even some friendships and relationships where people who just don't value compassion, don't see that as important, we can just feel really unpracticed at it. It can feel awkward and crunchy. We can have all kinds of thoughts and feelings about being compassionate to ourselves. And I'm going to talk a little bit today about what, why those things might be. But I just want you to know that even if you aren't comfortable with the idea of showing yourself compassion and you have some resistance to that you're so not alone and there is absolutely ways that you can just gently start to play with this okay so let's start with a very brief no fluff explanation of what self-compassion is and what it has to do with self-doubt So there are lots of technical definitions of compassion out there. I want to give you a really simple way to think about this. Self-compassion means that when times are tough, you treat yourself like you would a beloved friend. So simple, right? Deceptively simple because it's freaking hard for most of us to do in practice, right? When times are tough, almost All of us, many of us, will have an automatic response to criticize or to judge ourselves. And one thing I found is that compassion and criticism don't live together very well. It's very hard to hold both of those at the same time. So we tend to go to one extreme or the other. 
So I want to give you an example of how this has shown up in client sessions and the way that I like to work with folks around this. And it just starts to bring this to life, this relationship between self-doubt and self-compassion. So I had a client a few years ago. I'm just going to call her Sasha. Um, That's not her real name, but I want to protect her anonymity. She came to a one-off Velocity session And this is a 90-minute session, which is really designed to look at one thing. So for Sasha, she really wanted some help to start to move past a mistake she felt she'd made. She'd gone for a promotion at work and had missed out on it. And it had really knocked her self-belief. She was finding it so difficult to move past. And after two years of being quite happily employed in this company, she was actually thinking about leaving. So in the weeks building up to our call, she'd just been replaying all the mistakes she felt she'd made in the interview and at her job over the last two years. So her self-talk, the way she was speaking to herself, was hypercritical and very judgmental. So I won't go into huge detail about the whole session, but mostly we we unpacked a lot of the meaning that Sasha had been making about the situation and looked at the choices she had. And bringing some perspective to the situation, looking at how more than one thing could be true, really seemed to bring some relief. Sasha had some other beliefs that she was going to practice that felt good to her. And I'm always really conscious when clients want to look at their mindset at this kind of cognitive work. When we're looking at what we believe and why, we can end up with a nice logical story that sounds good on paper, right? But it doesn't touch us emotionally. And I think that, you know, a lot of coaching is heavily influenced by cognitive behavioral therapy and that that kind of movement towards changing our beliefs. So if you're not a coach, if you're listening in and you're not a coach, this is what people are talking about when they talk about mindset, right? It's all about changing what you believe, allowing yourself to see multiple truths. And look, this can be completely helpful. But I think sometimes we can end up thinking our feelings. So we describe them, but we don't really allow ourselves to experience our own emotions. And this can make complete sense, right? Sometimes it's because just what we feel seems overwhelming. Sometimes we feel a bit embarrassed about how maybe disproportionate our feelings seem. And sometimes we just don't really know how we f- how we feel about anything. I know for me, it took a long time to figure out like what even was this combination of sensations in my body? Could I name it as an emotion? I want to share an example of an exercise that I just really invited Sasha to do towards the end of our session, to bring some compassion to herself in this situation. And this can be really helpful if you feel a bit crunchy about showing yourself compassion or it just feels like, yeah, I don't really have a lot of practice in feeling this, then you may want to try this. So I just asked her to imagine one of her really good friends had just missed out on a promotion. And I played the part of her friend and I repeated back to Sasha word for word what she had said to me, the way that she had been speaking to herself. And I just 
asked her to share with me what that brought up for her, what she would like to say to her friend about this kind of shitty situation. And she really paused for a moment. I could feel her voice cracking and she was just like, oh my God, none of these things that you're saying about you are true. I just want to give them a hug and say, I'm so sorry. This is just so disappointing and hurtful. And I might tell them, like, I know it seems like there's no way to come back from this, but you were invited to apply for this promotion. So they must think you're doing a good job. And what if we just get dressed up and go out? Because I want to remind you that you're fabulous, right? So all of this stuff came tumbling out, all these really, really kind really compassionate thoughts and feelings. And then I just asked her, like, what if you'd said to your friend the same things you were saying to yourself? What if you spoke to her in the way that you had been speaking to yourself? And for Sasha, this was the real kind of light bulb moment, right? Because that would have been so unhelpful, so hurtful. Anyone who criticized her when she was already feeling down was going to be a really shitty friend. And she was able to see this is why she was feeling stuck. Every time she criticized herself, judged herself, she was keeping that hurt and disappointment alive. There was no space to move on. So just by allowing herself to really feel the difference between a compassionate response and a criticizing response really allowed Sasha to see that she was always in choice about how she was going to speak to herself about the situation. So let's talk about compassion, four myths and a truth. So first, the truth. The truth is that people who struggle with self-compassion are very often compassionate with other people, right? It was so easy for Sasha to just straight away be able to come up with compassionate and kind things to say to her, um, the friend she was imagining. It's often way easier to show other people some understanding, to give them a break, to not hold them to this crazy high standard that so many of us hold ourselves to. And this is really good news because it means that self-compassion isn't a new skill that you have to build from scratch. More than likely, it's a skill you're already pretty good at. It's just that you haven't practiced directing it at yourself, right? So it will require some intention and some consistency to get used to. You'll need to experiment with actually showing yourself some compassion for this to feel more natural to start seeing the benefits of being compassionate and for this to become a more automatic response. And this is the thing that one of the core reasons I've found that most of us struggle with compassion, why we resist it, is the very reason we're unpracticed at it, right? No one has modeled this for us. So remember, self-compassion just means that when times are tough, you would treat yourself like you would treat a really close beloved friend. So this can feel really new and a bit weird, right? It means that when times are tough, you're just with yourself. You can talk to yourself as if you were a friend. You validate your own experience. You validate your feelings and your thoughts. Instead of saying things like, you just need to toughen up, stop crying, that's getting you nowhere. Instead of saying, well, no wonder this didn't work out. You're so useless. Think of all the things you've done wrong. 
instead of saying, oh, just keep moving forward, stop thinking about it, stop indulging your feelings, go do something. Instead of those things, you say, hey, this is hard. Of course you're upset or sad or disappointed. It's okay to feel that. This makes so much sense. Ah, honey, I'm sorry this happened. It's okay. I've got you. What do you need right now? Right, if no one has ever validated your experience with compassion before, that might feel like a lot, right? We internalize the voices of the adults around us because that's how we learn who we need to be to belong. So maybe there was a time when dismissing your feelings felt necessary, but you can unlearn anything that doesn't feel good to you as an adult. And if you can offer compassion to others, you can absolutely learn to offer it to yourself. So most of us haven't had compassion modeled to us, and that's because our parents and grandparents have not really ever been taught to value compassion. It's never been something that our culture has embraced. And I think there are four key myths that are kind of feeding into this that I want to address. So the first one is that all that self-compassion stuff is just hippie nonsense, right? And the general gist of this is that compassion seems to lack substance and rigor. A lot of folks who feel crunchy about compassion will confuse it with coddling. But just because self-compassion might sound soft, it does not mean that it lacks substance. In fact, there's a really strong body of empirical research that shows self-compassion is enormously helpful as an attitude, as a skill, a perspective, especially for working through major emotional struggles. Self-compassion is a core underlying principle to a lot of different therapies. It builds really important resources like courage and resilience. Uh, one of the key researchers in self-compassion is Dr. Kristen Neff, and she spent her entire career as an experimental psychologist clarifying, studying, and educating people about self-compassion. Her book is a great resource and a real great kind of grounding and introduction to this work. So yeah, self-compassion might sound like fluff, but it's actually got a massive amount of empirical data to back up just how useful it is. Okay, myth number two, and this is a big one. If I stop being hard on myself, I'll lose my edge. So there's a real kind of personality type, right? That successful, high-achieving, really productive go-getter out there who relies on self-criticism as fuel for their success and achievements. And there's a really core belief driving that, that kind of person without a strong kind of bullying, judgmental voice, they'll lose their edge, they'll lose their drive. It's this weird kind of lone wolf archetype in our culture. We've all seen a sort of movie where the scrawny young army recruit shows up to basic training and after a few weeks the drill sergeant getting tough with them and yelling at them and pointing out how weak they are, magically they become men and go off to fight some heroic battle. You know, it's the same mentality that has all those tech bros biohacking their way to kind of alpha status. I always want to ask them about their relationship with their dads. (laughs) 
it's really weird when you think about it, right? Because wolves are always in a pack or they die. Anyway, so this is a myth that has totally been disproved by the body of research into human motivation, right? A lot of people grow up being really hard on themselves in school and in their careers, they achieve success and then assume that because these two things are correlated, their success is because of that judgy voice that's been pushing them forward. But this is just not true. Like most successful people are successful despite their self-criticism, not because of it. Empathy, creativity, emotional intelligence, communication, cooperation, these are vital skills for, for leaders, for successful people to possess. Professor Amy Edmondson of Harvard Business School, who actually coined the term psychological safety, she talks about conditions for folks to be successful. And these are great examples of compassion in action. Like to what degree is it permissible to make mistakes? To what degree can difficult and sensitive topics be discussed openly? How much are people willing to help each other? To what degree can you be yourself and feel welcomed for this? Like these are the kind of four pillars of psychological safety, the very conditions that successful people need. And in my own coaching work and my practice over the years, I found having worked with a lot of high achievers that report feeling those kind of fraudulent feelings of never quite being good enough, when they start to really heal their self-doubt and make peace with that tendency to overwork and overgive, they're able to stop being so self-critical, practice some self-compassion, and commonly commonly, typically, they will report kind of finding another gear for their productivity, a real sense of mission for their work. There is more meaning, more fulfillment that's available to them. So this idea that somehow compassion means we lose our edge is actually completely false. And offering ourselves some compassion is more likely to make us feel a bit more productive, a bit more successful, more fulfilled, more meaning from our work. Okay, third myth, which is from Kristen Neff's research, and that is that self-compassion is just a slippery slope to self-pity. So I just want to talk about the differences between compassion and pity. When we're in self-pity, we're a bit egocentric, right? We're kind of absorbed in our own emotional drama and we feel like we're the only ones that have been through this and it's so hard for us. And most of us will experience a few moments of that and then we kind of come out of it, we can support ourselves, usually with some compassion, but sometimes with some criticism, right? When you move into self-compassion, you start to see that, oh, it's okay that I'm feeling this and I bet I'm not the only one. I wonder how I can ask for help. I wonder how I can find other people that maybe are sharing this experience. Right? And so this is where you get beautiful kind of group experiences where we have a shared kind of difficult experience and we are working together to figure that out. Group therapy and circles and recovery groups, all of those kinds of contexts really help us to see that compassion for ourselves, for other people can really help us to move out of self-pity 
So it's actually the other way around. I think self-compassion is the rope to self-pity, not the slippery slope to it. Okay, myth number four, self-compassion is just self-indulgence in a different dress. So these are very different concepts, very different experiences, right? So a lot of people will say, I don't want to offer myself any compassion because I'll just let myself get away with anything. I'll just say to myself, I'm so stressed out. I'm just going to watch Netflix and eat ice cream for dinner. But this isn't self-compassion. This is self-indulgence, right? Indulgence is usually about compromising our well-being. There's often some passive behaviors that get involved, consuming things like food and drink or scrolling or telly, when it's a way of avoiding the discomfort, then it's a kind of shadow comfort, that's self-indulgence. But when you're compassionate to yourself, it's very different. You actually want to be happy and healthy in the long term, right? You're probably even going to be willing to um, experience a certain amount of displeasure, right? Not indulging yourself, doing things like having an early night, having a difficult conversation, doing something that you don't find particularly easy or fun. So self-compassion is actually a really healthy adult self characteristic. It's why it's at the heart of my work because this is about taking real responsibility for yourself because you accept and you value and you trust and you believe in yourself, right? So compassion provides a really motivating force for growth and change and providing some safety for ourselves in all of our messy, imperfect humanness. Okay, so we've looked at some of the reasons why we find compassion a little crunchy, and we've talked about one truth and four myths to do with self-compassion. And what I want to do to end this episode is give you a really practical, immediately applicable approach to self-compassion. And this is particularly for anyone who finds this whole self-compassion thing a little crunchy. So this technique or approach comes from Acceptance and Commitment Therapy Act. And it's very simple. It's just about noticing, are you in clean pain or dirty pain? So I want to talk about what I mean by that. Remember, self-compassion means that when times are tough, you treat yourself like you would treat a good friend. So what I want to invite you to think about is when something's tough, when you're going through something that's tough, are you experiencing clean pain or dirty pain? So clean pain is the pain that is a direct result of a life event. Clean pain is what we feel when something hurtful, either physical or emotional, happens to us. So we experience clean pain when a relationship ends, when someone dies, when you lose your job, when you cut your hand slicing a tomato, when someone doesn't text you back, right? Clean pain is about validating our experience, validating our thoughts and our feelings in response to the tough situation. With clean pain, we have a really natural stress response to the event 
and it gradually subsides. And it's all about showing ourselves some compassion. That's the fastest way to process clean pain. Dirty pain, on the other hand, is the pain that comes from all the criticisms and judgments we make up about the life event. Dirty pain is caused by the thoughts we have about a situation. It's about the meaning we make. So dirty pain can sound like, I cut my hand because I'm so clumsy and stupid. My manager scheduled my presentation last because she doesn't think it's very good. Only five people signed up to my free class because they don't think I know what I'm talking about. See how dirty pain adds on that extra layer that's completely unhelpful and unable to be verified. And what can happen is that our dirty pain meanings become the truth, right? We let those dirty pain meanings stand. We never question them. We don't look for alternative meanings. We never ask ourselves, what else could be true? And to do this, we need to offer compassion, right? I think we often add in the dirty pain to try and make sense of something that feels hard, confusing, disappointing. It's a way of almost numbing the feelings that can come up. And sometimes if we're used to being criticized, if we're used to judging ourselves, there is a kind of comfort in believing that it's just down to me. It can be really liberating to realize that we always have choices about how we interpret situations, even and especially the really tough ones we find ourselves in. So just seeing that our dirty pain meanings are usually made during times of heightened emotion and we just didn't question those. Bringing in some compassion allows you to just stay in that clean pain, to validate your experience with compassion, to move through it quickly, to offer yourself some grace, some kindness, some understanding. Self-compassion is, I think, one of the hardest things for us to learn, especially if we've never had it modeled for us. What I'm hoping is that from this episode, you've got a little idea of what this can sound like. So practice this. Just try it out. See how it feels. I hope this has been helpful and I'm sending you all the compassion and fortitude you need. Hey, if you're listening and you're fed up with the ways that self-doubt holds you back, I want you to check out Self-Belief Coach Match. You can work with an experienced practitioner I've personally trained. I believe with everything I have that you deserve to find out what's possible for you on the other side of self-doubt. Like how much more peaceful would your life be if you had someone in your corner who was helping you make sense of the very good reasons why you have self-doubt? What would it mean to make choices from a place of wanting to give something a go rather than worrying if you're capable, experienced, qualified or thin enough? How amazing would it be to just embrace some of the confidence of Brad from Accounts? And look, if you have toothache, you don't judge yourself for not being able to fix it, do you? Of course not. You're like, my face hurts and that's all I can think about. You sure don't take that dentist money and go buy face cream and a pair of jeans and think this will work. So why do that with self-doubt? Work with an experienced, trained, skilled professional. It's time to make sense of your self-doubt and go after your dreams. 
Just have a little look at selfbelief.school backslash match.